Hello there. Welcome back to what I suppose is season two of Zoned Out. I am so excited to be back and there's so many changes that I would like to mention at the top of the show. My name is Rin. Uh, for those of you who uh, are perhaps new to the show at this point, but there's going to be a new format to the show going forward. So there will still be at least one episode per month, but the first half will be free and the second half will be Patreon only. The first half will generally be more educational, while the second half will be a little more relaxed. Uh, we also have a new co-host, Josh from Radical Planning on YouTube. Uh, Josh, welcome to Zoned Out. Hey, great to be here. Just introduce myself. Uh, again, I'm Josh. I run a YouTube channel called Radical Planning. Through that, I met Ren and we connected and, you know, we have so much in common, obviously. I'm really excited to be doing a couple episodes with Ren on this. Um, I hope that we can have an interesting dialogue together. Um, besides my planning YouTube, I have also been an urban planner for about 10 years and I do a lot of equity work. I do transportation work and uh, land use as well. Yeah, I'm really excited for you to uh, join the show. Um, the conversations that we've had off mic have, I think, been really fantastic. So excited to give everybody a keyhole glimpse, I suppose, into a couple radical planners talking. But yeah, these monthly episodes will largely be unscripted as Josh and I talk about various topics and news items. The audio essays will still be happening though, so don't worry. Just every two to three months instead of every month. I was beginning to feel that doing a full, well-researched audio essay every month was getting difficult without sacrificing the quality of the research, which kind of defeats the purpose of doing it. I think that with the extra time, we'll be able to make some truly fantastic episodes. Before we get back into the podcast, I do want to take the time to reflect on a couple things and clarify things from season one, uh, if we want to call it season one. On multiple episodes, I talked about Land Back, the indigenous people's movement to reclaim stolen land and sovereignty in the United States and other settler colonial states. This is a movement I wholeheartedly support but I want to make clear that my podcast should not be the only place that you hear about it. I'm not indigenous, and there are things I probably would do a little differently now after taking the time to reflect, um, but one great place to learn more would be the Red Nation. They put out the Red Deal, which is a straightforward and excellent read, and the Red Power Hour if you want another podcast recommendation. Speaking of settler colonial states... The other item I want to touch on is Israel's ongoing ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in Gaza. During the Queer Geography series, I gave this ambiguous statement when talking about how Lebanon has the highest number of refugees per capita in the world and that Israel is not solely responsible for this. I hope my overall message came through at the time, but I feel it's important to speak clearly on this topic and leave no room for misinterpretation. The countries that back Israel's actions share this responsibility, particularly the United States and United Kingdom, given their roles in Israel's founding and modern persecution of Palestinians. To the extent Palestinians themselves or Lebanon have anything to do with how many Palestinian refugees there are in Lebanon, it's at most negligible and ignores the root cause, which is Zionism. To listeners who have avoided learning about Israel's actions, present and past, I invite you to broaden your knowledge, knowing that to be against Zionism is not to be against the Jewish people. 
Consider following Jewish Voices for Peace if you would like to see Jewish people standing in solidarity with Palestinians so that a genocide is not perpetrated in their name. I also want to thank the work of Palestinian journalists in Gaza, ensuring this campaign and the beautiful people of Gaza are documented and that the world cannot easily look away from what has unfolded there. Thank you to Palestinian solidarity groups around the world for showing that a future of peace and equal rights for all is possible in Israel and Palestine. And thank you to Jewish Voices for Peace and other uh, groups of Jewish people as well for doing the same thing. I implore everybody listening to this podcast to do something each day to stand in solidarity with the people of Gaza, whether that be sharing information on social media, contacting your representatives, donating to a Gaza aid group, getting out in the streets, or something else constructive. Do not lose hope. A ceasefire and lasting peace is possible. With that said, it is my pleasure to inaugurate Zoned Out Season 2. At the start of the episode, Josh and I are going to take a look at an article about housing inflation in Minneapolis from Bloomberg, all the way from last August. Kind of crossed both of our radars independently, and then we thought it would be an interesting uh, look at to kind of how like the media talks about housing as a topic, um, sort of in the mainstream. And then in the second half, we're going to have kind of a candid conversation about our experiences as urban planners. That second half, like I said before, will be only for Patreon subscribers. So after you have donated some money to, uh, for example, the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund, feel free to subscribe to the Patreon. Uh, It's $2 a month, and you get all of the bonus content uh, from this podcast. With that said, let's get into it. All right, so the article that we're looking at today is titled First American City to Tame Inflation Owes Its Success to Affordable Housing. It's written by Mark Niquette and Augusta Sareva in Bloomberg, and it's from August 9th of 2023. So it's obviously a few months old at this point, but in my view, I don't think this article is like particularly remarkable. It's not out there in how it talks about housing, but that's kind of the point because I think because it seems fairly middle of the road in its reporting, I think it's a good indication of where the overall conversation about housing is in sort of mainstream media. And it offers an opportunity for us to see where we can kind of like shift the conversation Mm -hmm. and push the envelope a little bit. I don't know. Is that fair to say, Josh? Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. We could, and we will, uh, talk about the merits of their claim, but really it's that They're not saying much at all in this article. They're associating two things very loosely and not really providing any nuance. And I think that's just extremely typical of housing journalism. It's kind of rushed. It's um, uninformed. And generally, it's, it's just trying to get a story out, asking experts, quote unquote, you know, who do identify with the ideology that more housing is always going to lead to affordability. And the result is we get a headline that people can use to like defend their claims, but not really ever looking any deeper than that. Yeah. But that's why we're here. Yeah. So yeah, you're exactly right. Well, let's, let's go ahead and get into it then. The article starts by saying the Minneapolis area has seen an increase in rental units 
thanks to a regional effort that included new zoning rules. No place in the U.S. has put inflation in the rearview mirror quite as fast as Minneapolis. In May, the Twin Cities became the first major metropolitan area to see annual inflation fall below the Federal Reserve's target of 2%. Its 1.8% pace of price increases was the lowest of any region that month. That's largely due to a region-wide push to address one of the most intractable issues for both the Fed and American consumers, rising housing costs. Well before pandemic-related supply chain snarls and labor shortages roiled the economy, the city of Minneapolis eliminated zoning that allowed only single-family homes and since 2018 has invested $320 million for rental assistance and subsidies. That helped unleash a boom in construction of apartments and condos in the region that proved to be a powerful antidote against inflation, given that the cost of shelter accounts for more than a third of the overall U.S. consumer price index. Minneapolis shelter prices were up at half the nation's annual pace in May. Let's stop there for a moment. Mm -hmm. Josh, you looked into kind of where new housing is being built, right, in Minneapolis? Yeah. So people love to talk about the elimination of single-family zoning in Minneapolis. It also happened, I believe, in Seattle. And what this means is that in the zoning code where wherever single family existed, you know, obviously it would limit the construction to building a single family home. But what they did was they allowed, I believe, duplexes and accessory dwelling units. I think in Minneapolis they went up to quadruplexes, but I'm not certain, which would mean four units where before there could just be one. But to say that in those areas, in those single family areas, is where the housing boom occurred is entirely inaccurate. Very few permits were issued for these single-family areas. The housing boom that occurred in Minneapolis is occurring in every city. Like We were in a housing boom from 2018 to uh, 2021, and there was just a massive undertaking of new construction. This did not happen because of the zoning. This was already in place. The removal of single-family zoning didn't cause a housing boom in Minneapolis. Yeah, this gets back at sort of a theme in your YouTube channel and on this podcast of sort of these form-based solutions that get put forward to deal with housing affordability and housing shortages as they exist in many metropolitan areas are not bad in and of themselves. But the extent to which that they have something to do with affordability, I think is, like you said, vastly overstated. And that the underlying logic of the development system of like the capitalist city remains in place. And leaving that alone and just kind of tinkering around the edges with the zoning code isn't actually going to yield the necessary like changes in affordability that we're hoping to see. Yeah, there are a lot of necessary changes to zoning. I think that even people who live in single-family neighborhoods often desire to be able to walk to their daily needs. I will agree that in many situations, single-family zoning absolutely prevents any sort of you know mix of uses in the periphery or obviously within the zone. But the form of the neighborhood is not what results in affordability. It's not that 
inherently a duplex is more affordable than a single family home. Like there, there are just so many elements at play that you can't, you can't just look at one and say, this did it, which is exactly what this article is doing. Yeah. Yeah. Very that. <laughs> so yeah, let's, uh, we'll, we'll keep kind of seeing examples of that throughout the article. And perhaps the one time that they do deal with, <laughs> they do talk about an intervention, an actual intervention in like the free market. The way they talk about it, I think is very revealing. <laughs> All right. So this is a quote from Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey. I can't tell you how many people were like, oh, look at all this supply, look at all these brand new buildings, and kind of scoffing at it like this was going to lead to gentrification or rent skyrocketing, said Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Bray, a two-term Democrat, in an interview. The exact opposite has happened, end quote. And then the article is broken here with a graph or chart showing that Minneapolis metro residents spend a lower share of income on rent than peer metropolitan areas. So Based on a joint study from the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis and the Itasca Project, which we'll talk about in a moment, they estimate that, on average, Minneapolis metro residents spend 40% of their income on rent. Peer metros from there, you know, you have Portland, Seattle, and Austin all around there, and then going up from Denver all the way to Boston at over 60% is what they estimate. I don't know. If you aren't too critical of how this gets framed in the article... This can come across, I think, as a little triumphant. Mm-hmm. Minneapolis metro residents are only spending 40% of their income on rent. <laughs> it's, it's less than Portland. It's less than Boston. You know, and it's like, that's great. Yeah. The, the story here, in my view, should be that like, no metropolitan area is doing well in this regard. Like, 40% is way too much to be spending on rent. I've talked on the podcast before, even that like, the 30% sort of income burden, or sorry, uh, rent burden cap that exists on, uh, for like affordable housing purposes, like even that is very arbitrary and I would argue still too much. Mm-hmm. But yeah, an uncritical reading of this would just be like, wow, Minneapolis is doing well. It's like, no, nobody, <laughs> nowhere is doing well. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why these cities were picked because they, they all make sense to me except Pittsburgh. Mm. I lived in Pittsburgh for a time. Uh, this is shocking that they pay 47.2% of their income on housing. Pittsburgh is not a growing metro. Every other metro they have here is like booming, except maybe Chicago and Boston, but they are growing. Again, uh, journalistic tactic or whatever you want to call it, it is, I think the inclusion of Pittsburgh is just really odd. But all that to say, like this 40% thing, I think is the result of Minneapolis being a booming region, like growing so much over the past two decades that rent increased as well. And for the mayor to be like, oh, look at all this supply, you know, like to make fun of people for being concerned that new development leads to higher rents, that is essentially possible that, you know, I don't know. I haven't looked into exactly what occurred in Minneapolis over the past 20 years, but I understand that feeling for people to be like, oh, new construction, higher rents, because Minneapolis boomed and the rents are 40% of income, which is insane. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't think a, a triumphant attitude can credibly be adopted here with the state of housing there. The attitude of, oh, look at all these people scoffing at all this new housing. 
low-income people, working-class people, like people who are rent burdened, it's very understandable to adopt that point of view, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think in the whole NIMBY-YIMBY debate, the class distinction is not always made there as far as like who gets labeled as a NIMBY because like you do have like well-off single-family homeowners who are just like opposed to new density and you know, also there, there is like a, a racist and, and classist component in their like refusal to allow denser or affordable development in their single family home neighborhoods. But then for the people who are already living in dense areas who are concerned about new development, you know, to, to kind of lump them in as well as like having the same kind of anti-development stance. It's like, it's not anti-development really. It's like anti-displacement, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of convenient just to like use NIMBY in like the broadest sense possible. Right. When you don't actually want to get engage with like the nuance of what people are actually saying, which is, which is frustrating, you know? Yeah. I think this also is illustrating the, I, I would say it's happened in the past year, like the shift of the narrative from more supply will lower rents to more supply will slow down the increasing of rents. Mm. And that is, that's obviously what this article is about. Like, like we just <laughs> discussed that 40% is not a goal. That should never be the goal of what housing to income burden is. But, but yeah, the, the, the conversation now is how do we, how do we slow down rents as much as possible? And it's, it precludes any discussions of like alternatives to the free market like it is inherently that conversation is inherently about the idea that only free market solutions are discussed at this table and let's hope that we can do something to slow down the rate of growth yeah you're absolutely right and like later on they talk about rent growth specifically in minneapolis proper like since 2017 was just one percent i mean to be fair 1% growth between in a six-year period is, again, relatively good, but the conversation that actually needs to be had is rents going down, you know? I think anything less than that is insufficient and not really worth celebrating. Agreed. Because that's just where rent is at, you know? Like, it's just wildly high. And, like, I, I looked at the proportion of renters in Minneapolis proper who are rent burdened, spending more than 30% of their income on housing. And it's 48.6% of households, wow. of rental households in the city of Minneapolis, you know? Like, that's like almost half the rental households in, in the city of Minneapolis. And so it's like either incomes have to increase for those households or rent has to go down, preferably both. Both, yeah. <laughs> and so just saying, like, to say to people who are already spending 30, 40, 50% of their income towards their rent, to say, like, well, good news, your rent is only going up by 1% this year. That's not good news. Yeah, not acceptable. Not a goal. Going on in the article here, the housing initiatives, including the Itasca Project, an alliance of the business, philanthropic, and public sectors in the region pushing for at least 18,000 new housing units per year through 2030, have picked up where the Fed's monetary tightening leaves off, demonstrating the role state and local policies can play in curbing inflation. And we're going to stop here in the article again, because I want to talk a bit about the Itasca Project. It's a strange organization. 
They describe themselves as, quote, an employer-led civic alliance focused on building a thriving economy and expanding prosperity for all. So one of those like corporate nothing statements. But the employer-led part is interesting to me because American cities have a history, like specifically in the Rust Belt, in the industrial heart of the country, which Minneapolis does fall within. These cities have a history of different strains of capital duking it out over housing. In industrial cities, you had manufacturing capital take an interest in the affordability of housing and actually push to keep housing costs low so they wouldn't have to pay their workers more uh, so that they could afford housing, which put them at odds with real estate capital. Previously on, the, on this podcast, we've talked about how like the fluidity of capital and also business attitude started changing in the 70s. At the start of the 70s, and then particularly during the Carter administration, like that's when transferring money across sectors of the economy and like making capital liquid became way easier. And so that tension between those different types of capital largely diminished because suddenly it was like it was a lot easier for industrial firms to also understand themselves as like real estate firms and that the real estate that they owned was valuable in itself. So the idea of housing affordability, especially with the industrialization and the shedding of American industrial workers, like it kind of fell by the wayside. The thing is, is like a quote unquote employer led project, like the Itasca project, it's not that. The people involved in the creation of the Itasca project's recommendations for housing are composed largely of private sector housing developers and industry groups like Ryan Companies, M.A. Mortensen Companies, and Dominion. Like these are national developers. And the leader of their housing affordability task force is from Ryan Companies, which is a national real estate development and management firm. So the employers and the real estate developers working together when it comes to housing at the Itasca project. And them kind of getting a little shout out here is interesting to me. And I don't know to what extent like they were involved with this article, but to position them as like the leader is definitely convenient for them. Because if you actually read their like housing innovation report, like it, it reads like a developer's wish list. Their recommendations for the course of action that the Twin Cities should take to lower housing prices is one, lower land costs through bundling parcels and giving public land to the private sector, ideally at low or no cost if the proposed development meets certain conditions. The bundling parcels things, like that's the one thing that I think has some merit to it. One thing that we're going to talk about later this year in an audio essay is like Catherine Bauer and modern housing. And she talks about how like subdivision of parcels easily allows for speculation of land, but then just like giving public land to the private sector particularly at low or no cost, like why, you know, with that, I always just ask like, what is the value add of the private sector in that instance? Mm -hmm. The second one is reduced development costs through looser development standards and shorter permitting times. Uh, in other words, deregulation. And then finally lowering management costs through reducing property taxes. So <laughs> it's just, it's a right-wing program, you know? And I think if you dig beneath the surface of a lot of discourse around housing affordability, it's easy to assume that like, oh, the left-wing position is to just like build, build, build. And the thing is, is like, it's not really actually about how much you build in terms of like whether or not it's a left-wing position. The left, like in my view, I, I don't think really needs to have a lot to say other than like there needs to be enough housing. It's, it's about how the construction happens and, and who is doing it and who benefits from it. And if you look at who has adopted the YIMBY moniker, aside from like individual people and like 
groups of residents and places who have like a curiosity about urbanism and, and, and a desire for density. Like developers are very much interested in it as well. Mm-hmm. And for the reasons that I just laid out, like their program is very much a right-wing economic program that slots in quite well with opening up a bunch of new land for development. Yeah, it's very propagandistic. I'm not using that lightly. It's a, you know, it is like a program of talking points. If the audience recalls, the Itasca project called for 18,000 new housing units. And I just think that for somebody who isn't in planning, what does that number mean? People will rally behind numbers like this. A lot of times housing plans, like in New York City, for example, they have a number. They're like, we need to build this many units. And then that's it. It's just like a unit. It doesn't matter where the unit is. It doesn't matter how many you know rooms are in the unit. And it doesn't matter how much the unit costs. It's just, we have to build it. And it these these think tanks or lobbyists they just like flatten the field the word of the day is nuance they remove all nuance from the conversation and the result is we just it's just 18,000 and to do this we'll you know we'll get rid of permitting process and zoning and you know you people aren't stopping to ask like what does what 18,000 where what and how how will this help us Obviously, this isn't a statement against building. It's just that these groups are, they're, they're just, you know, just saying something. They just have put down a number. And I'm sure there's some analysis behind it, but, you know, it is ultimately arbitrary. They just want to, to have control over the land and the sort of promise of 18,000 new units is the way that they get into the city deregulating because almost every American city has given up on the idea of like constructing housing themselves. There are legal restrictions in doing so. And so anytime you get the promise of the free market, cities will basically bend over backwards to make it happen. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that that number that they put out there is kind of their ticket into progressive circles, if you will, or like democratic circles, right? Mm -hmm. Because the point of the number is to say, this is the number of new housing units that we need to overwhelm the market, to flood it with new housing and bring down the price through supply and demand. But that's just not how it works. Housing has inelastic demand. Like people are going to pay as much as they possibly are able to, to to keep a roof over their head. Mm -hmm. And when you have organized groups like the Itasca Project or other landlord associations and developer groups like in every metropolitan area, right? Like they're not stupid. Like they coordinate on things. They're not just going to endorse a policy of like undermining their own profitability. So yeah, I guess just the lesson here is just like be critical of who's kind of spinning things. And the other thing I'll say, because before we move on to the the rest of the article here is just like, I think the other argument implicit in this program is that the state is incapable of producing this much housing. Mm-hmm. Like you said, Josh, like most cities have either for political reasons or just due to a lack of resources. I mean, the federal government, like HUD is wildly underfunded. It's very difficult to build new public housing through federal funds. Uh, and on top of that, you have the Faircloth Amendment limiting the number of units. But like even through local or statewide schemes, that isn't happening. 
we need to remember that the state is absolutely, when not hamstrung by austerity, capable of producing a lot of housing that is good quality and meets the needs of its communities like very quickly. Mm-hmm. Read a little bit about European countries after World War I. Out of necessity, because of the devastation of the war, they adopted social housing programs and built like, I don't know, it's like four and a half million units of good quality like social housing in the like 10 or 15 years after World War I ended. Like it's impressive how much good new housing the state can build when the resources are made available to it. And crucially, the state can also do it cheaper than the private market can because the state doesn't need to turn a profit. So you don't have to kind of buy into the underlying logic of like the private development market has to produce this housing. They don't. But yeah, moving on in the article, they say rent growth in Minneapolis since 2017 is just 1% compared with 31% in the U.S. overall, according to the Pew Charitable Trust. Its share of affordable rental units and ratio of rent to income are better than most comparable U.S. metro areas. I don't want to stop there for a moment, because they provide a, another chart here comparing what seems to be the city of Minneapolis and its rent growth to the city of Portland, Oregon, Tyson's, Virginia, New Rochelle, New York, and the United States overall. It is just kind of a curious change of scale here. If I'm interpreting this data correctly, they've shifted from the metropolitan scale momentarily to just look at the city of Minneapolis itself. And this is just a pet peeve, I think, more (laughs) of mine than anything. I don't know if this changes the narrative, like if making the metropolitan area uh, the the focal point for rent increase uh, changes the story at all. But this is where I think kind of topic knowledge comes into writing about these things. And like Minneapolis proper, the city of Minneapolis has a population of like 450,000 people, I think. It's not more than 500,000. Its metropolitan area is 3.5 million people and covers like seven counties. So like, I don't know, just pay attention to scale. Yeah, what they're doing, I think these are the cities or some of them aren't cities, but the places that got rid of, well, you know, I don't even know because Tyson's Virginia did not have single family if people don't know what Tyson's Virginia is, it's a horrific edge city that is, um, <laughs> it was a mall. <laughs> it was like a mall with a big parking lot and they turned it into a, uh, a big parking lot with skyscrapers Sorry, in it. the phrase horrific edge city is going to stay with me forever. <laughs> That's the name of our next endeavor, <laughs> horrific edge city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And earlier I said Seattle, I guess I meant Oregon, uh, Portland, Oregon, but yeah, I think Again, what does this mean? Like, what, why these, well, I know why they group these four, because they changed their zoning rules. But uh, what am I supposed to infer? Like, it, these are, these numbers are, they could have been from anything, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it, it, especially like New Rochelle was still 7%. You know, I, what does that mean for compared to Minneapolis's one? It's like, I don't, I, I'm failing to see how. If I look at this, then my, I have to assume that all these places were able to stop the rate of rent increase over time. They're asking a lot of the reader, or really, they're not asking anything at all. They're asking you to keep moving and to uh, not examine um, what's going on here. Well, I think that the thing that you infer from this is that these places were been, like well below the national average in rent increase. I think it would be 
interesting to kind of compare cities as well that didn't change their zoning rules uh, and also kind of keep the scale uh, the same, like the size of cities. Like mm-hmm. I know for a fact Tyson's Virginia and New Rochelle, New York are not as large of cities, even just like city proper as Portland or Minneapolis. Right. Definitely not. And a market system, I think, will probably play a bit of a role. So, yeah, I don't know. The, the, this is another strange chart in this article. Yeah. And one more thing on this is like, what of, what of places that already don't have these restrictions, you know, to the scale that like a, maybe a Rust Belt city would have like a big ring of single family zoning within the city limits? Like what of New York City, which allows the densest development the most of it of any city in America, like what was its rent increase over this time? It was enormous. It was massive. And no, so- New York is very affordable, notoriously. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is it that the zoning changed? Like, are we saying that it's not the end zone that matters? It's that you change it to be denser? Or is it that denser zoning equals lower rents? Because that just isn't true. Like, that's not... That can happen, but not because of density. Like New York City is the densest city in America. It's the most expensive city in America. So it's not, you know, this is just disingenuous to be like, well, they can be denser now. So that's why it only grew 1%. That's the only thing that happened. Right. Yeah, that's a very good point. And the thing about increasing the level of intensity of development on a given parcel is that that allows for a greater rate of profit to be extracted from it, generally speaking, and that will increase its value, which increases the cost of land. And land costs like are absurdly high because of the speculative nature of mm-hmm. real estate. And density plays into that, you know? Again, people are concerned about their rents or if they're homeowners even, like their property taxes because of the value of their property going up when land adjacent to them or their parcels themselves are opened up for higher levels of intensity of development. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, density in a market system can be self-defeating uh, from the perspective of profitability because the developer, if they want to turn a profit, needs to account for that increase in uh, land price. That can often happen from opening up new land uh, for higher levels of intensity. It's, it's, it's speculation through and through. So again, for the listener, try not to get bogged down too much in like, is density good? Is density bad? That's not the point here. The point is the underlying market system right. that I think robs d- density of otherwise the efficiencies that it can create in many instances. That's exactly right. Let's move on in the article here. Quote, there is no more effective way to rein in inflation than to expand the supply of affordable housing and increase housing affordability, said Moody's analytics chief economist Mark Zandi. The mayor's approach to housing has drawn opposition, including legal action based on environmental concerns and complaints about multifamily rental units next to single-family homes. And in the city that was shaken by the 2020 police killing of George Floyd, inequality remains entrenched, with residents of color remaining nearly twice as likely to be living in households burdened by shelter costs as white residents. In the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, quote, It just keeps coming back to this housing story said Peter Frosch, the chief executive officer of the Minneapolis-St. Paul Regional Economic Development Partnership. Quote, to the extent that we're interested in continuing this performance around managing costs, we have to stay focused on housing, end quote. Skipping ahead, 
Curie or Curie Commons is a 187-unit complex under construction in the Harrison neighborhood of North Minneapolis, where the poverty rate exceeds 30%. A quarter of the apartments will be reserved for those making less than 30% of area median income, or $35,500 for a family of four. The four-story property will include a rooftop deck with a view of the city skyline and a large community area. David Wellington, its developer, said such projects have more complicated financing and take longer to build than apartments with market rate rent. But, quote, we feel pretty strongly that the demand for these units is there and needs to be served, said Wellington, co-owner of Wellington Management Inc. The article goes on and talks about another site where there's going to be more apartments going in with a portion of them reserved for uh, low-income renters. And I'll just say, getting redundant at this point, but 30% or 20% of the units reserved for uh, affordable housing, it could be 100%. It just can, you know, like it's just, it's whether or not the state or other non-market methods of uh, constructing housing want to be used. And if there's the political willingness to do that, and of course the legal situation to allow for it. Again, I don't really want to pat developers on the back for just being like, we're doing a good turn here by reserving 20% of these units for low-income renters. It's like, it could be all of it. We could have 100% of the units be permanently affordable, but that is not what is happening. It's also, um, to have these like 20%, 30% reservations, you know, as, as construction continues, that everything is being built to where 70% of the people who can afford it are, you know, living well above the median that they're able to afford market rate it's it's implying this growth of wealthy people within cities which i don't believe is happening and that eventually if if in the perfect developer world they had full control of the city then really only 30% of it would be affordable so that's yeah. that's something yeah. to consider as well if that and just remember almost half of minneapolis's renters are rent burdened yeah Let's see. The Minneapolis region got authorization to build about 14,600 multifamily buildings last year, ranking 11th out of 51 peer metro areas on permits per capita in that category in 2022, according to Bloomberg calculations using Census Bureau data. Okay, let's skip ahead here in the article to the one time that they talk about a non-market, or rather, I guess, an intervention into the market to force more housing affordability. Uh, The article reads, the housing initiatives have not all worked the way policymakers intended. Critics say a stringent rent control policy implemented in St. Paul in 2021 has chilled development of some projects because the financing no longer worked out when the rents would be capped for years to come. Stop there for a moment. This is the one time rent control is mentioned here. I will just say, as somebody who has spent a lot of time shopping around for housing in in the Twin Cities metropolitan area, because recently I was thinking about moving there. If you go to like Zillow or like Realtor.com or Craigslist, like St. Paul is where you will be able to find, by and large, the the highest number of units within like a relatively reasonable age. Like that, that is where the most affordable housing in the Twin Cities is, at least from my perspective as somebody who is looking around. And what's nice too is that as a renter, if you're looking for rental housing, it's really nice to know that your rent is, isn't going to increase by more than 3% per year uh, unless like the city approves a rent increase of that degree. Like 
That is St. Paul's rent control policy, and it is one of the best in the country. And it's just a good thing for renters, flat out. Uh, and again, this idea that it's chilled development, it's like, well, okay, maybe you shouldn't be developing then if your project only works if you can jack up rents by five or, you know, 7% every year, 10%, whatever it may be. Like, it's absurd in many places. Like, that shouldn't be the housing system that we're settling for, you know? Yeah, I think this is the most uh, propagandistic paragraph in the entire mm-hmm. uh, article. It's ignoring everything. Like, it's ignoring absolutely everything that is going on in the housing market. It ex- it's ignoring the interest rate increase. It's ignoring the extreme high rates of inflation we've had under Biden. It's just picking something out of the air. It's like, oh, it's, it's rent control. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. It's ignoring that in cities across America, without rent control, development has also chilled, as they call it. Development has slowed down in general because of interest rates. Like It is very expensive to build and, uh, and inflation as well. And it's just, it, it's, it's so ridiculous to say that it's rent control. It's, it's rent control has caused this to happen. Yeah, I don't, I don't really care for that at all. Yeah, and <laughs> on top of that, If you look into the history of this policy at all, the residents of St. Paul voted for rent control. Like, this was not a top-down policy that, like, technocrats or whatever imposed on the city. It was the people of St. Paul specifically saying, we want rent control. Contrast that with the city of Minneapolis, where people there also functionally voted to uh, instate rent control, but the ballot initiative was actually, like, for the city government to create a commission to develop a rent control policy or something. And the city has kind of been dragging its feet on it for a couple of years now. There was a very shady Minneapolis City Council vote that happened uh, last summer. You can look into, like, it's just, I feel like a lot of unnecessary procedural hurdles to people in Minneapolis also getting rent control. Mm-hmm. And this is really, like, what developers and people invested in a market-based housing system are uh, concerned about is that like the majority of people in these cities want some sort of state intervention in housing costs. They're just mad that the people of St. Paul actually voted for it. Yeah. The push also has not erased some persistent housing problems. When comparing black households and white households, the Twin Cities had the highest difference in homeownership rates and housing cost burden of any similar size metro in 2021. That disparity is the stain on this region, said Adam Dwining, Director of Government Affairs at North Central States Regional Council of Carpenters. I think in urban areas across the country, I mean, really since like Black Lives Matter began as a movement, I, I think the idea of equity, like racial equity, gets co-opted into these market-based housing solutions as a selling point for them. And I think it's very disingenuous and disrespectful to the genuine need to create racial equity in every aspect of life in this country. That's not to say that, like, the state inherently can create that, but, like, the state through democratic accountability mechanisms at least is more accountable than private developers who are largely white and, like, sort of continuous within this system for the past few decades. You have to have deliberate redistribution of resources. And to that end, you can't go about it in sort of a race-blind way. 
And I think the whole market-based approach to racial equity, like, I, I just, it, it kind of disgusts me. Sure. I think if we're being honest about it, it's insufficient to say the least. I think these two paragraphs are really weird for the article. It kind of reveals that the authors don't have like a grasp on what they're talking about because so often it's the high black homeownership neighborhoods that are the ones that are facing gentrification, facing dis- facing destruction through upzoning. And also it's it's collapsing this argument that they've been making about multifamily housing, which is almost universally rentals, but could be condos. It's collapsing it with single family housing, which is something that's worth talking about. Like when the Fed says uh, there's a housing shortage, every time you read what they're citing, like their own study about that, the shortage that they're reporting on is in single family homes, Mm. specifically single family starter homes. I think this is just a, a problem I see a lot in the housing conversation is like, people are like, well, we need to get rid of single family housing so we can densify the city. And then they'll use like stats about single family housing to like promote their ideology, you know, like, like citing the fed shortage or talking about the difference in black household, white household homeownership rates, which nothing this article is touting would even begin to address. These market solutions are not creating more single-family starter homes. They're not creating more opportunities for homeownership. And I think that's just like a flaw in their logic. I don't, we don't have the time to discuss the merits of homeownership, but in a like completely market dominated world where in America, like your entire wealth, if you're middle class, is attached to your home, you have to acknowledge the role that single family housing plays, like in protecting people, their incomes, their retirement, everything is tied to single family housing in some way. And yeah, I just think for the article to bring it up, especially with that equity lens that you just mentioned. Like it's inappropriate. Like this is this is not what they ideologically support. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's like how not everybody can be a boss under capitalism and this housing system, not everybody can own a home. The system won't allow for it. And because of systemic racism and the really like the racialization of poverty, that disadvantage is going to fall to people of color disproportionately. Moving on in the article. At the same time, high costs for groceries and other goods can make it hard for Minneapolis residents to notice the favorable conditions in the housing market. Food prices in the metro area rose 6.8% in May over the year, federal data shows. Again, the word favorable there is doing some heavy lifting. (laughs) Still, Minneapolis had one of the lowest quote-unquote misery rates, a Bloomberg calculation using inflation plus unemployment data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics of 21 metro areas in May and June. A major drop in utility prices since last year has contributed to its improving inflation picture. Hey, we made up this metric. 
<laughs> to support our article? Yeah. In college, for one of my classes, like it was a seminar on, well, I, so the major would create seminars on different topics. And at the end of these seminars, they would field ideas from the students for what topics to include in future seminars. And I wanted to have a seminar on development indices of countries around the world. And so they created a, a seminar all about development indices. And it was very interesting because data more broadly can be manipulated to kind of create whatever result that you want, depending on the things that you select to include, to come up with whatever like final number that your indice is using. Like these scoring metrics that get developed, get developed with specific ends in mind, I guess. And, and I don't think Bloomberg was setting out specifically to tell a story about how great Minneapolis is, but you know, I mean, they pick two metrics, they pick unemployment and inflation. And then we're like, we're going to combine these two numbers and create like a percentage score uh, for these metropolitan areas. And that's going to say something really valuable. And like... <laughs> You know, from the UN Human Development Index to like the Legatum Institute's Prosperity Index, like these kind of scoring <laughs> metrics, you just have to be very critical. When you boil the living conditions in a place down to one number, you know? Yeah, I think it's weird to say that misery is having a job. Or not having a job, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Misery would be not having a job and experiencing high inflation. Which, sure, yeah, that would suck. But also, what about the increase in salaries or wages, I think would be a more fair reading. It's like inflation plus wage increase would be a misery metric. Yeah, or like, I don't know, ennui. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of different ways to be miserable. And yeah, Bloomberg but, is, is failing us in this. Well... They're making the article more exciting. The article is just about to close out here. So after the, the misery index chart, uh, just a couple more paragraphs. Quote, the Twin Cities benefit from some unique characteristics. The area has a high concentration of Fortune 500 companies including Target Corp and U.S. Bank Corp, while peer metro areas, including Dallas, Phoenix, and Jacksonville, saw a mass influx of residents in recent years that sparked demand shocks in the local housing markets, the Twin Cities population has remained close to 3.7 million people. I think that is an important point to take into consideration. You know, supply and demand isn't everything in a market system when it comes to housing costs. It does play a role, though, and I think population growth, maybe you can speak to this a little more, Josh, but Population growth, I think, is like a relevant factor in the affordability story for the Twin Cities. Yeah, I think it probably is the most important thing. <laughs> and they put it at the absolute end of the article. Typically, when a city's population isn't growing, it, its rents don't also increase. There are things that can make that happen, but rent increase is usually tied to, you know, explosion in population. There is a supply and demand element to that, but obviously I wouldn't simplify it. I think the combination of a stagnant population plus like the wild inflation going on in Minnesota 
It makes supply and demand ideologues have to like reckon with maybe rent isn't going up because people cannot afford to pay more. Like there aren't people moving in at some high rate to the city and you know their wages aren't increasing that's a national thing and then inflation is very high so there's less money to spend like this could be part of the reason that rents only grew 1% as well like i again i don't know like it, this would require extensive study it would, you can't just write a bloomberg article and be like well we found it it's that we built a lot of housing bottom line is a stagnant population plus inflation is something worth examining beyond just increase the supply. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think any attempt to kind of simplify the housing conversation down to like just one thing <laughs> within a market system again is one weird trick. Yeah. <laughs> and and the unfortunate thing is I think for cities like local governments, like basically trapped in this upward spiral of housing prices, it's hard to look at that narrative, this silver bullet being presented to you of just, if you just mash the, the build button enough, then supply and demand will kick in and affordability will be solved. Like for city governments that are strapped of resources, I get why that's an appealing thing, you know, even as they are complicit in propagating that misinformed or capitalist uh, policy position. You know, that's, that's why we're here, is to present an alternative way to understand development in cities, to understand the uh, housing crisis right now, to offer a different way forward uh, and, and a different program entirely, freed of the constraints imposed on cities by the capitalist development system. The article finishes off with a perfectly ominous quote. <laughs> I don't know. It feels ominous to me. Quote, the Twin Cities has historically been an affordable housing market relative to the nation, said Ron Feldman, vice president at the Minneapolis Fed and co-chair of the Itasca Project. We're trying to make sure we keep it that way. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> don't expect to pay less than 40% of your income towards rent. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. It's so threatening. Yeah. It's just a threat. We're trying to make sure we keep it that way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that was the article. Uh, any final thoughts about it, Josh? We covered a lot of ground. I just want people to think critically. Like, you don't have to agree with us on everything, but you have to know that people are trying to convince you of something very particular. And a lot of these articles, they appear to be like in favor of cities, in favor of people who live in cities. And really, they're just some sort of vehicle for think tanks or nonprofit lobbyists to put out these ideas that benefit them, benefit capital. And it just takes a little getting used to that language before you'll start to see it everywhere. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing is I think for us as planners and as just people who regularly read media about cities and read comprehensive plans and, you know, see the discourse around cities, like you absolutely begin to see the same things over and over again. There might be an impulse among listeners to say, well, this is just one article or something, but like you'll see these, the same program reprinted, reworded in, in different places over and over again. That's just because like from the perspective of capitalists, from real estate developers, it's a program that redounds to their benefit in a market system. So yeah, just, just keep that in mind. Always ask who benefits. Mm -hmm. Well, with that, we're going to take a break. Then when we come back, we're just going to talk about, I don't know, what it's like to be an urban planner, or I guess our thoughts on the planning field. Okay, so that's the first half of the episode for January, but we actually recorded so much audio that the second half is really just like an entire separate bonus episode. So you can listen to a snippet of it after this little outro section to see if you want to sign up for the Patreon. Uh, It's a great conversation about the planning profession. So if you want to listen to it in full, you can join the Patreon for just $2 a month. I'm also doing monthly live streams for patrons now, finally. The first live stream will be on Monday, February 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central on YouTube Live. I'll be playing games and chatting with whoever is in the chat. Josh's YouTube channel is Radical Planning, and his most recent video is about equity planning, part of a great series he's doing about various planning theories. So go check it out. Thanks for listening and take care, everybody. At some point, I don't know if it's one of your videos or one of our conversations, you remarked that you're not certain the profession of planning will exist 10 years from now. And I hadn't consider that, you know, the thing that I've been saying forever, like whenever people have asked me, can you get a job in urban planning? My stock answer is like, well, yeah, people aren't going to stop living in cities, but what do you see in the future for the profession? A lot of why I make that comment, I've said it a couple of times, maybe never on my YouTube or anything, but just like the death of planning is imminent, is that all of these calls to streamline, to deregulate, these are all, these all represent a chipping away at the role of the planner. You know, I'm not I would never and I have publicly said this that like I don't think zoning is the ideal way to manage land. I don't think zoning is creating great cities, but mm, it's rem- shots fired. <laughs> it's <laughs> on a on a on the record pro zoning podcast. Pro zoning. <laughs> it's it, it the there's no replacement that is better than zoning right now. So until right. until we figure that out, every time that it's successfully chipped away just represents both a loss of the power of the people, for better or worse, mm-hmm. and the loss of the role of the planner uh, who mediates the conflicts between development and the public. And so I just see like as cities you know try to streamline and chip away, like they find less and less need for the planner 
This is already happening, as we pointed out, with the like rise in the private sector planner. Yeah, I just think we're getting to the point where it's what is what is a planner? Like, are we just paving the way for a developer to you know release their site plan, which is not what urban planning is? It, we don't really.、Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess I know some planners who do engage in like making development plans, but that's typically not. I wouldn't call that urban planning. I call that architecture or urban design or、mm-hmm. landscape architecture. Just a combination of things. But yeah,、right. I think that's that's rapidly becoming the role of the planner is to just make sure that developers can move as far along as possible before there is a conflict with the public, where. The role of the planner should be mediating that mediating that conflict throughout the process, and also pushing for <laughs> better solutions.、Mm-hmm. And and this sounds so dark and hopeless, but it's not. It, <laughs> it take me for it. It's I don't think it is. I think what you and I are trying to accomplish in our media here is to let people know whether they have a planning degree or. They're just a person who cares. You have the power to do this, to to make change, to to make cities better, but probably not as a professional, as much as a citizen who is organized with other citizens and you know fighting for control over over the way a city is developed, over what happens to. Your backyard, we'll say.、Uh, what? <laughs> I guess the the to sum everything up, it's like no, I don't think planners. I think the the importance of a planner will dwindle from here on out. I don't think that professionally planners will be more important than they are today, and then tomorrow they'll be less important than they are today, and the day after that less important. But、mm-hmm. there is power among us to organize to. To fight back, to demand a, a right to the city, as it were, to、mm-hmm. challenge the neoliberal hegemony, to say we're not going to take this anymore. We are going to fight for an equitable city. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Good, great. <laughs> yeah. All right, solved. Yeah. No. <laughs> Yeah, no. Thank you for elaborating on that because I think the one thing that I can't recommend enough is breaking out of the American understanding of urban planning and the urban planning tradition here, because I think when you see what other countries have done, both contemporarily and historically, you'll see an expanded role for planners and the public to influence. The way their cities and communities are. I just finished reading *Modern Housing* by Catherine Bauer. That is going to be a fundamental text for the rest of the year that I'll be <laughs> referencing continuously. But that text and like really opened my eyes to like what I'm missing as a professional planner. Like what what has been removed from the profession, and it places in context what you're saying about the trajectory of planning. It is already on death's door as a as a profession. I really do think so. Not to be hyperbolic, but just like once you get a, gain an understanding of like what planning could be、uh, as a process and as a, a practice, it kind of 
places in stark relief what stands in for planning today and the diminished role that it has. And yeah, the last thing that I'll say on that too is like planning still does happen, you know, under capitalism, right? We there's the mythology that it's the free market and the invisible hand and that there isn't planning happening, but it's it's capitalists mm-hmm. who plan the economy under capitalism. And uh, you know, I think what both of us are speaking to is resting that power to plan the economy and our cities back into public control. Exactly. Through into a democratic mechanism. Thank you.